0: You're listening to Weird Medicine with Dr. Steve on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. I've got diphtheria crushing my esophagus. I've got Ebola virus dripping from my nose. I've got the leprosy of the heart valve exacerbating my incredible woes. I want to take my brain out. The wave, an ultrasonic, anthropographic, and a pulsating shave. I want a magic pill. For all my ailments, the health equivalent of Citizen Kane. And if I don't get it now in the tablet, I think I'm doomed and I'll have to go insane. I want a requiem for my disease, so I'm paging Dr. Steve. It's Weird Medicine, the first and still only uncensored medical show in the history of broadcast radio, now a podcast. I'm Dr. Steve, and this is a show for people who had never listened to a medical show on the radio or the Internet. If you have a question, you're embarrassed to take your regular... Me- <laughs> to your regular medical provider, if you can't find an answer anywhere else, give us a call at 347-766-4323. That's 347 poohead. head Check us out on Twitter at Weird Medicine. Visit our website at drsteve.com for podcasts, medical news, and stuff you can buy. Or go to our merchandise store at cafepress.com slash weirdmedicine. You know what? Don't go there. Unless you want a Bristol Stool Scale mug. Those are pretty cool. I just need to make my own. But I don't think you're helping us out. I made, I think, 20 cents last year at that place. But anyway, the Bristol Stool Scale mugs are cool, though. So cafepress.com slash weirdmedicine. Uh, most importantly, we are not your medical providers. Take everything you with a grain of salt. Don't act on anything you hear on this show without talking it over with your doctor, nurse, practitioner, physician, assistant, pharmacist, chiropractor, acupuncturist, yoga master, physical therapist, clinical laboratory scientist, registered dietitian. or you know, whatever. Right. Yeah. Very good. Please don't forget feels.com slash fluid. You get uh, 50% off your first order if you order a subscription. And you can try it out. It's, uh, you know, broad spectrum CBD. Pretty cool and uh Dave Cecil's uh going to be doing the theme song for uh feels.com campaign and I'm I I think it would be cool if they um started using it for other stuff. Um we we need to give Dave some love over here so you're going to really like his uh theme music for this. And you know, <laughs> it's a commercial but you you might Anyway, whatever. It com slash fluid for 50% off your first order. If you uh, do a subscription, you can cancel at any time. Don't forget uh, to get your um, uh, Amazon on at stuff.drsteve.com. I did check, and they still have um, surgical face masks if you are so inclined. Uh, be, be beat the, um, the lines at the uh, pharmacy. And then the fights, and you know, and you're standing in line with people, you're trying not to get sick, and then people have horrible viruses. So go to stuff.drsteve.com and uh, do all your Amazon shopping there. And if you need some earbuds, check out tweakedaudio.com, offer code FLUID for 33% off. And uh, if you would like to attain your ideal body weight, try Noom by going to Noom.drsteve.com. It's N O O M. I'm I've sustained my ideal body weight uh, for the first time since uh, college and I owe it all to Noom. I got to be honest with you. You get a counselor, you get group, you get group counselor. You have these little mini modules that you do every day and it's not a diet. It's a it's a way to break bad habits and to change your relationship with food. And I really do um, uh, I really do appreciate them. And uh, check out Dr. Scott's uh Bullshit, it simply rolls on that, okay? <laughs> oh, he's a good little feller. He's all right. Wow. What a difference a week has made. Uh, I did uh, the Opie Radio p- podcast uh, last night uh, out of the blue because of the coronavirus thing. And um, so, you know, that was cool, talking to the old OP. If you remember, he was the one that greenlit this show in the first place and uh you know I've never been on his uh in his this new show of his so uh, it was cool we talked for about an hour and uh talk and I thought there may be people that are listening to this that don't listen to podcasts or whatever or listen to that one so uh there's a lot of interesting information out there right now so I think for the next few weeks we're going to be hitting the coronavirus thing pretty hard so one of the things that came up was pandemic versus epidemic. So if something is endemic, it's always in a population. The example I use is obesity. Obesity is endemic, particularly uh, in the United States. And uh, so that's a disease that exists permanently in a particular region or population. Um, you know, malaria could be considered endemic in some parts of the world. Then an epidemic is an outbreak of disease that attacks a lot of peoples or a lot of people uh, at about the same time and may spread through one or several communities. That's an epidemic. And then uh, uh, yeah, a pandemic is when an epidemic spreads throughout the world. Well, there's there's more uh, to it than just that. And so the World Health Organization provides – a pandemic alert system. This was primarily, uh, created for influenza. And they, so that may have something to do with why this is not being used right now. The way I would think that it would have been used, but I've got an article that we're going to read about why the WHO, at least as of this recording has not, um, declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Now the, um, the virus is called SARS-CoV-2 okay so severe acute respiratory syndrome cov meaning coronavirus 2 meaning this is, this is genetically related to the original SARS virus that hit what a, a decade ago pr- primarily in asia and uh they decided to call the disease covid-19 so that would be um you know coronavirus disease 2019. That's basically what it is. There's nothing that mysterious about it. So, but the World Health Organization has this influenza pandemic alert system, which you could use for other diseases as well. And uh, phase one is low risk, and phase six is full-blown pandemic. So let me go through the phases and see what you all think. So phase one is where there's a virus in animals that's caused no known infections in humans. So If they'd been aware of this coronavirus in the snakes or the bats, wherever it came from in Hunan, China, uh, that would have been phase one. If they'd been aware that those animals were getting ill. And then phase two is where the animal flu virus, or in this case, animal coronavirus, has caused infection in humans. And uh, phase three is when you have sporadic cases or small clusters of the disease in humans And um, human-to-human transmission, if it exists at all, is insufficient to cause community-level outbreaks. Then you have phase four, where the risk of a pandemic is increased but not certain. And then phase five is – so phase four is just kind of, well, you know, it's whenever – it's kind of a dumb phase. We could just take that one out and make this a five-phase system. F- uh, phase five is spread of disease between humans is occurring in more than one country or one WHO region. And then phase six is where there are community-level outbreaks in at least one additional country in a different WHO region from phase five. And then the, at that point, a global pandemic is underway. Now, this is for Influenza. We don't have a coronavirus pandemic thing. And they, can, and they can just say that. Look, that scale is just for influenza. So this is from a New Scientist, which is a pretty good uh, online and print journal. It says, uh, prepare for a pandemic, says the World Health Organization, as the global spread of COVID-19 soars by the hour. It's not a matter of if, but when, says U.S. health officials. Yet... So far, the WHO refuses to actually call COVID-19 a pandemic. Well, why? And the answer may lie with what kicks into gear when we deploy the P word. Countries have pandemic plans that are launched when one is declared, but these plans may not be appropriate for combating COVID-19. And the WHO doesn't want countries to lurch in the wrong direction. So this sort of bolsters our... Idea we had a minute ago that they're not wanting to use that scale because that's an influenza scale. What they're looking for there is something like the 1918 swine flu that came through and became a global pandemic that uh, killed at least one to three percent of the world's population. At that time, it's estimated 10 percent of people actually got the virus, which means 90 percent didn't. Right. And of those 10% 10% uh, did not make it. Now, this was in 1918, before Tamiflu, Zofluza, uh, and before ventilators even, and modern healthcare. So we don't know how much that had an impact. And we won't know till this stuff sweeps through again and we see if we can do a little bit better. But, you know, when you've got 10% of the world's population getting it and 10% of those dying, that's 1% of the world's population uh, died. Uh, I mean, 99% of people didn't die. But, you know, it's tragic for the 1% that did. And that's a huge damn number. You know, let's see. I think – let's see what the population of the world was in 1918. What was – I could ask – echo, I guess, the population of the world – World in 1918. This makes great radio when I'm typing stuff in. See, I don't have a Travis or a what used to be a Sam Roberts. Now he's, a, you know, a fancy man. Uh, world War I claimed 16 million lives. Influenza epidemic that swept the world 1918 killed 50 million people. One-fifth of the world was attacked by this deadly virus. Well, that doesn't tell us what the world population was. It would be hard to calculate from that. Okay, so let's go back. Here we go. I'm looking right now at a world meter. And in 1918, it doesn't say. It goes back to 1900, it was 1.6 billion. In 1927, 2 billion. So let's just say 2 billion. Okay? So uh, one, oh, golly. Okay, well, it'll be more dramatic if she says it. Echo, what's 1% of 2 billion? 1% of 2 billion is 20 million. 20 million people. 20 million people. And you go, well, 99% of people didn't. Well, but 20 million people did. That is a huge dang number, you know? So uh, this was going to be uh, pretty interesting uh, to see what, um, what happens next. Okay. So um, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say the COVID-19 virus already meets two of its three criteria for a pandemic. It spreads between people and it kills. The third is it has to spread worldwide. The virus is now in 38 countries and counting on nearly all continents. Those are just the ones we know about. So how much more worldwide does it need to be? And uh, uh, epidemic experts say there are no global criteria. There used to be For flu pandemics, but the WHO abandoned them. Oh, okay. Well, shit. It's right here on their website. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Um, uh, How do I get back to that? The uh, WHO um, abandoned them when it was criticized for declaring a flu pandemic in 2009 that triggered expensive countermeasures. Oh, God forbid you spend money trying to save lives in some countries which were deemed unnecessary. You know, we deem these things unnecessary after the fact. That's the problem. So what you don't want to do is not do it and deem it necessary after the fact and you haven't done it. So, uh, you know, I... Stop criticizing them for being overly cautious when it comes to one of these effing uh, viruses, please. Uh, So that bruising could be one reason the WHO seems anxious to avoid the P word. Now, past getting trashed for something doesn't stop you from doing the right thing. But now they're saying there's a more important one. There are two kinds of response to a growing pandemic. The first is containment. As cases appear, you isolate each person and then trace and quarantine their contacts. That worked for SARS and the 2014 uh, to 2016 Ebola outbreak. But the second is mitigation. If containment only slows the virus, eventually you get community spread and people are infected without knowing how they were exposed. So you can't quarantine all contacts. All you can do is slow the epidemic so it won't peak massively and quickly overloading health facilities. You close schools. Cancel mass gatherings. Oh no, Uh, no Coachella, as as China did. I I would be kind of sad about that, I guess, as China did, or as Italy is now doing. Shut down whole cities when they have community spread. Uh, Flu skips between people so quickly the containment is really kind of a non-starter. Pandemic plans are mostly designed for flu including those of the U.K. and the U.S., and they go straight to mitigation. They don't even mess with containment, even though we do do a little containment. I, I know when I got influenza a couple of years ago, um, I was uh, quarantined for seven days. You know, Of course, my family came and went, so they were just taking the virus everywhere. They didn't get it, so... Um, Uh, So pandemic plans mostly, okay, uh, the U.K. plan suggests uh, containment only if a new pandemic flu hasn't learned yet to spread as fast as normal flu, which is interesting. So you have these viruses. How fast do they spread from one person to another? How easily are they spread? Could you just cough on somebody and they get it? Or do you have to be in close proximity to them and cough on them multiple, multiple times? Or do they have to touch something that you touched? That's called fomite transmission, where you cough on your hand and then instead of sterilizing your hand, you go run to the bathroom while you grab the handle. And that mucus containing all those lovely viral particles is now all over that handle. And if the virus can survive like that for a while, the next person that grabs that handle to go in the bathroom uh, can get those viral particles on their hand. Now, if they pish or uh, take a dump and don't and are disgusting and don't wash their hands, and you know who you are, um, they may then go eat, which is making me physically ill just thinking about it, and uh, get those viruses in their um, mouth or their eye or their nose, and now they've picked up the, the virus, and that's called fomite transmission. So, uh, so how easy is it to transmit? What's the incubation time? Are there asymptomatic carriers? In other words, are there are people walking around that don't know they have the disease and they're spreading it like crazy before they actually get sick. And that's the dangerous thing because, you know, you got people running around giving people the virus. They don't even know they've got it. Um, and then how lethal is it? How how lethal and uh, – oh, and what time period are you transmitting virus? Is it through the whole time from the day you get exposed or is it much later and right before you become symptomatic? So all of these things are important to how virulent a um, disease like this can be and how deadly it can be. Um, so uh, in this light, statements from the WHO start to make sense. It's not either or, said the WHO Director Tedros adnan this week, we must focus on containment while doing everything we can to prepare for a potential pandemic. David Hyman. Who, <laughs> he said David, who led the WHO's fight against SARS, says you need both containment and mitigation. Uh, Bruce Aylward of the WHO just back from Handling an International Mission to China reports that it used full-on mitigation, stopping travel, keeping people inside, shutting down the huge city of Wuhan in Hubei province, which, which had community, community spread before control efforts even began. As a result, the epidemic stopped climbing and new cases are falling steeply, so this containment strategy seems to be working, at least in these communities where it's started to spread. Everywhere else, China stopped a community spread from developing by contact tracing and quarantine, reminding everyone to wash their hands. There you go. And monitor their temperature. Some places also used mitigation measures such as canceling public gatherings, school and work as well. You don't have to do that for real long. You just do that until the cases start to drop. And then you can open back up again most of the time. The key, says Aylward, was tailoring the approach to local circumstances. So that's right. If you have a one-size-fits-all strategy for this kind of stuff, you'll never get anywhere, uh, uh, or you will be less effective than if you tailor the um, response to the situation. Now, I will tell you this: that I read an article just recently where they were able to uh, sequence the spike protein of the coronavirus. Now, the spike protein is the is the protein looks like a little like a um, shark's tooth that, uh, attaches to a human cell. The outer membranes merge, allowing this virus to then just, you know, bloop its, um, DNA into the cell. That DNA now takes over the nucleus and starts making copies of itself. And, uh, you know, the ribosomes are now, uh, transcribing copies of viral DNA instead of the DNA that you need to keep your uh, cell operating. And then you just, you know, eventually just all these viral particles come shooting out of this uh, cell and uh, ready to infect more cells. And um, as long as you make a valid immune response to these, you can eventually block those viruses from... Uh, infecting further cells, and then you clear the disease, and then you've got lifelong immunity to that particular set of antigens on those uh, coronavirus uh, surfaces. But um, in the meantime, you're coughing out mucus that has these viral particles, and you're giving it to people. And it looks like there may be fecal-oral transmission of this, too. So somehow this damn virus gets into your turds, and if you don't wash your hair, or hair, well, yeah, I mean, do that. But if you don't wash your hands, great, after uh, eliminating your bowels or evacuating your bowels, and then you prepare food for someone or you shake their hand or whatever, uh, you can tr- you may be able to transmit it that way. Um, so this seems to be the WHO's concern. Call this a pandemic, and countries will apply blanket measures designed for the flu. And people think it's like SARS, so you do things that way, or it's a pandemic, so you run and mitigate Aylward said during a press conference in in, uh, Beijing, if we only approach it with a binary SARS influenza mentality, we're not going to have the agility of approach that we've seen in China that's going to be fundamental to beating this on a global scale. Well, it makes perfect sense to me. Uh, Good for the WHO for having a somewhat nuanced approach. And I'm glad it's not just that they got beat up before when they did this before. However, the thinking seems to be binary. Uh, the head of the CDC Center for Respiratory Diseases says the U.S. will use containment till it gets signs of community spread, then the strategy will change. Meanwhile, the WHO seems to have a third problem with the P word. Using the word pandemic now doesn't fit the facts, but may certainly cause fear, said Tedros. Uh, asked about the WHO's reluctance to call it a pandemic, WHO spokesperson Tariq Jazarevic Jir- said it's important to focus on actions And not on words. Well. Give yourself a bill. (laughs) True, but words do matter. Reluctance to tell the public the truth. Okay, now they're editorializing. For fear of causing panic has plagued responses to other disease emergencies. Notably, bovine uh, spongiform encephalopathy in Britain. Oh, well, we could talk about that one for a little while, uh, a.k.a. mad cow disease. Uh, risk communication experts warn that not telling the public that containment will not prevent a pandemic but might slow it risks greater shock over what comes next. Okay, well, you know, words do matter. And uh, I, I, I'm actually quite impressed that the WHO is taking this sort of nuanced uh, approach to this. So, um you know, we'll see how this how this go plays out. Um, you know, here's one where you know our president said, "Well, you know, when it gets warm, that'll be the end of the this virus." And so I wonder if that's true because you know there is a disease in Italy and I think in Australia as well. And it's pretty warm in Australia right now because it's middle of their summer. Um, uh oh, I've lost my mouse. Okay, there we go. Uh, Let's see here. Will the COVID-19 outbreak caused by the new coronavirus fade as the Northern Hemisphere warms up? This has been suggested by some researchers and repeated by some political leaders, including U.S. President Donald Trump. But we simply don't know if it's the case. Of course we don't know. We don't know anything about this virus. We're learning really fast. And they have a DNA analysis of it. Oh, oh. And let me let me go back before I, I continue on this. We were talking about the spike protein. That's the key to making a vaccine. So now we can we have sequenced it. We can make it in the lab. Even we can take that DNA, put it into bacteria, have them just spew out the spike protein, and uh, see, and then inject it into people and see if when they make a um, immune response, if that also blocks them from getting the COVID-19 disease, which is caused by what? What's it caused by? Caused by SARS-CoV-2. Very good. You've been listening. Give Thank yourself you. a bill. So uh, uh, Trudy Lang at the University of Oxford says, we absolutely don't know that. Keep asking virologist colleagues and nobody knows. How would they know? There's no way to know. So when you hear people say the weather will warm up, and it'll just disappear. That's a... An unhelpful generalization, well, yeah, I mean it's it's a supposition. It's not really a generalization, is it? That's the wrong word. Or a hypothesis. Uh the heat, uh okay, so the renowned virologist Donald Trump said on the 10th of February, the heat, generally speaking, kills this kind of virus. A lot of people think it goes away in April as the heat comes in. Well, there are people that think that that is true. He isn't the only politician to make that sort of claim. Of course, we don't care about what politicians say. I am very interested in what scientists are saying. Uh, It is thought the virus can survive for up to four days on surfaces. And what is that called when it survives on a surface and someone touches it and sticks their finger in their nose and gets the disease? Did I hear you say fomite transmission? Give yourself a bill! You are absolutely correct. You guys are good. Uh, so, uh, some researchers, including Paul Hunter at the University of East Anglia, UK, uh, do think the new coronavirus won't survive for long in warmer conditions. One extreme scenario is that it will burn itself out sometime in the summer, says Hunter. The other extreme scenario is it will reduce in the summer but will come back again in the winter and become what we call endemic, that it will spread pretty much everywhere. Uh, however, if it's less infectious in warmer conditions, there's a greater chance of it spreading in the southern hemisphere as conditions there cool. Of course, we see that right now with influenza, don't we? You know, influenza just kind of circles the globe, doing its thing in the southern hemisphere, in our um, in our summer, and in the northern hemisphere in our winter, and uh, mutating like a piece of crap that it is. But we're going to get you. Uh, uh, influenza, very soon we will have a universal influenza vaccine that will not be reliant on guessing what the different proteins it's going to mutate on its surface over the next, you know, few months when they're trying to make these vaccines. So uh, it's sort of like handicapping a horse, you know, you you do everything right and still get it wrong. So um, uh, the universal vaccine is coming. Let's see if there's anything interesting on the universal vaccine right now universal vaccine influenza all right and again fascinating to have me doing this oh now there are some uh, some studies that are just uh, coming out now universal vaccine placed on ectodomain of matrix protein 2 of influenza A uh let's see what kind of um, response they got um Okay, this is a mouse. These are mouse models. We show adaptive, adoptive transfer of wild type AM into mice restores protection by passively transferring. Geez, boy, this is a dense study right here. And this is a murine study. So they did this in mice in the Journal of uh, Immunology. Of course, this is 2017. Let's see if we can find something a little more uh, up to date. Here is a page on universal influenza vaccine research from the National Institute of Institute Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. It says a key focus of NIAID's NIA, influence. Jeez, yeah, just um. All right. Key focus of NIAID's Influenza Research Program and developing a universal flu vaccine, or a vaccine that provides robust, long-lasting protection against multiple subtypes of flu. Rather than a select flu, such a vaccine would eliminate the need to update and administer seasonal flu vaccine every year. Yeah, you could just get a flu shot as part of your kid thing and be done with it. Um, So flu viruses are classified by two proteins on the outer surface of the virus. There's hemagglutinin and uh, neuraminidase, and those are the H and N. So you hear H1N1, so that's hemagglutinin 1, neuraminidase 1. That would be sort of like swine flu. So there's 18 different H types and 11 different N subtypes. And Viruses can be further broken down into different strains within those subtypes. For example... There are various strains of H1N1, and uh, the H protein, also called HA, enables the flu virus to enter a human cell. It's made up of a head and a stem. Ooh, sort of like uh, my uh, favorite body part. Uh, Seasonal flu vaccines fight infection by inducing antibodies that target the HA head. This region uh, varies from season to season, which is why flu vaccines must be updated every year. However, scientists discovered the stem typically remains unchanged, making an ideal target for antibodies induced by a universal flu vaccine. Because there, There's got to be something that makes flu flu, right? Um, if it mutates too much, it no longer becomes influenza. So and we want a universal flu vaccine that would be at least 75 percent effective and protect against, um, you know, both uh, Group 1 and Group 2 influenza A viruses and have uh, durable protection that lasts at least a year, and you would hope it would be lifetime, and be suitable for all age groups. So um, in February of 2018, they released their Universal Influenza Vaccine Strategic Plan, outlining the Institute's research priorities. And so uh, they've got, you know, so... Um, so there are some leading vaccine strategies and candidates already. They're studying various strategies to create a vaccine that elicit antibodies targeting the HA stem. For example, uh, they designed an experimental vaccine featuring the protein ferritin, which uh, is involved in, um, um, you know red blood cells, which can self assemble into microscopic pieces called nanoparticles as a key component. Now, this is cool. The vaccine showed promise in animal testing is being evaluated for future trials in humans. Damn. So we do some nanoparticle mess. You know, these these little uh things are really what we're fighting as a little machine. The viruses aren't alive in the sense that they don't respire, they don't reproduce the same way that we think of things that are alive, but they are little self replicating machines that go in and hijack another cell's mechanisms and then make copies of themselves. Why? I don't know. You know, it's the virus has got to live too. You know, they're just able to do it. It's a natural selection thing where they're just able to do it, but that's, a, that's not life. It's a shitty form of proto pre life. They suck. And I hate them, but. It there is a possibility that we have viral DNA in our genome, and that's actually uh, caused mutations that may have been beneficial to humans. So it is kind of uh, fascinating to think about. We'll look that up in a minute too. I'm, I'm you know, what the hell? Um, in another approach to a universal flu vaccine, NIAID scientists developed a vaccine incorporating four subtypes of the H protein into one vaccine. It's made from non-infectious virus-like particles that stimulate an immune response but cannot replicate or cause disease. Those have been promising as well. So they've got phase one and two studies of universal flu vaccines, uh, strategies that include investigational DNA-based vaccine, uh, followed by a licensed seasonal influenza vaccine, uh, which is considered a booster to improve the potency and durability of these uh, seasonal flu influenza vaccines. So now they're into phase two clinical trial of a universal influenza vaccine called M001. This vaccine, which was developed and produced by some company, I'm not going to say their name, uh, out of Israel, contains antigenic peptide sequences shared among many different influenza strains. Well, that's interesting. So what are these different phases? So um, let's do phases because I don't want to get this wrong of a clinical trial. And just remember that they're in phase two of this influenza vaccine, which doesn't sound very sexy, the vaccine that they're doing to me. Um, So uh, let's see here. So phase two studies test the uh, efficacy, in other words, how effective the drug or the device is. The second phase of testing can last from several months to two years, involves up to several hundred patients. Most phase two studies are randomized trials where one group of patients receives the drug and a second control group receives a standardized treatment or placebo. So uh, often these studies are blinded, which means that neither the patients nor the researchers know who has received the experimental drug or, in this case, vaccine. So uh, this is what called what? See if you guys are paying it. Yes, double blind, placebo controlled trial. Give yourself a pill. So then you got phase three studies where they uh, do several hundred to several thousand patients. So they scale it up to large scale testing. It can go on for several years. And uh, they look at uh, more thorough understanding of the effectiveness of the drug, the benefits, and the range of possible adverse reactions. And then um, uh, they also. uh, once they finish phase three, they can request FDA approval for marketing of the drug. So they're looking at safety as well. And then phase four studies are post marketing uh, surveillance trials. So these are studies that are done after the stuff hits the market, looking at high numbers of people taking whatever this drug is and making sure that it was as safe as they thought it was when they started. All right. Um, Anything else? Yeah, that's about it, right? I know I felt like I was uh, getting off on something interesting, and I guess we talked about it all. Well, let's just take some phone calls. If you guys have questions about, look, I'm going to update you on this until it goes away. Right now, what do you do? Uh, Avoid places where this stuff is uh, in the community. If you get a fever, get, you know, because, look, influenza hadn't gone away. Influenza is sort of the devil we know. There's been uh, 30 million cases, 300,000 hospitalizations, and 30,000 deaths of influenza already this year. So that's a tenth of our population, right? We've got about, what, 400, uh, just under a tenth. We've got 450 million people in the United States right now. I don't know what the population of the United States is. Let's find out. Echo, what's the population of the United States right now? The population of the United States is about 326 million. Oh, I thought it was more than that. Okay, I thought it was 350 million a while back. Okay, so about just under 10% of people have gotten it. And of those, um, we're looking at, um, okay, well, let's see. Oh, it's like a half of 1% maybe, or maybe 0.1%. Echo, what's 30,000 divided by 30 million? Thirty thousand divided by thirty million is zero point zero zero one. Zero point zero zero one. Okay, so times a hundred is. Okay, so like point one percent. Yeah. So this influenza is not. I mean, th- look, thirty thousand is a huge number. And that's tragic when it happens, but uh, a 0.1% mortality rate is pretty low, considering we've had some as high as 10%, maybe even higher. So um, the COVID looks like it's more um, uh, around 2 to 3%, although somebody made the point on Twitter, which I can't argue with, that we have incomplete numbers because they're counting people who are just now getting the disease. They haven't had the chance to go through the disease all the way to see if they live or die, so that number may be higher than that. So we'll know very soon what the um, uh, d- the mortality rate of this virus is as it as it comes through. So, all right. So yeah, um, don't forget about influenza. No, it's never too late to get your influenza vaccine. If you hadn't done it, shit, go do it. You know one less virus you got to worry about. You may still get the the influenza syndrome, but you'll be less likely to get it. You'll be less likely to be hospitalized because of it and you'll be less likely to die from it. So, all right. Okay, doke. Well, how about some dick and nut stuff that we haven't uh, uh talked about any of those delightful things today. Number one thing, don't take advice from some asshole on the radio. All right. Um here we go. Here Let's see what this feller has to say. Hello, Dr. Steve. Hey. I am a 40-year-old male, and I make my own milk. I just squeeze my nipple really hard, and a little bit of milk comes out, and then I drink it. So, of course, I'm kidding about that. Um, I'm trying to actually avoid growing mantis is what I'm calling about. I make my own milk using almonds or cashews or soybeans. I make it at home. And I'm interested in soy milk because it actually lasts longer as compared to almond milk, and it tastes better, provided that the only ingredient is soy and water as opposed to just almonds and water, etc. Does soy milk make you grow mantis, as everybody on the Internet likes to say? Thank you. Okay. Um, so I, I want to answer the first thing first, Um Male lactation is not, um, it's not normal. It can happen. It can happen with enough stimulation of the male nipple. Um, uh, Production of the hormone prolactin is what you need to induce lactation. So it really doesn't occur under normal conditions in, uh, in males. So it requires a lot of, stimulation of that nipple so there are some drugs that can be used to increase lactation and um people who have been um who are recovering from starvation because the glands that produce the hormones recover faster than the liver which which breaks down the hormones so they get these high hormone levels which is just a crazy thing um you know so galacteria is um is the term for that. It's not really male lactation. And, uh, I, you know, I would just take two seconds and get that checked. You can have a testosterone deficiency where you have male hypogonadism or low testosterone, and you can uh, get have galacteria. Um, it can also happen if you already have gynecomastia or man boobs and uh if you have uh testosterone deficiency of course you may have a lack of sexual desire and some other things like that so i would probably get that checked out and uh but it can be totally benign as well now um soy milk the, um, soy is rich in these things called isoflavones which are basically plant-based molecules that have estrogen like activity. There have been cases of gynecomastia associated with soy product consumption. That's matter of fact, this is an article from endocrinology practice from 2008 called an unusual case of gynecomastia associated with soy product consumption. In this, a 60-year-old man was referred to the endocrinology clinic for evaluation of bilateral gynecomastia, a.k.a. man boobs, of six months duration. He reported erectile dysfunction and decreased libido. So you're already thinking something's wrong with this guy's testosterone. On further review of systems, he reported no changes in testicular size, no history... I, I wouldn't know if my nuts change size. It's not like I'm fondling them every five minutes. No testicular trauma, no sexually transmitted diseases or headaches, visual changes, why are they wondering about that they're wondering about a pituitary tumor Uh, no change in muscular mass or strength initial laboratory uh, assessment showed estrone and estradiol concentrations to be fourfold increased in the upper limit of the reference range so estrone and estradiol are female hormones and uh, they must have had a high suspicion to have done those those tests they probably these were i'm assuming were follow-up tests Subsequent findings from testicular ultrasonography, computed tomography of the chest. This guy had the whole workup, abdomen and pelvis, and positron emission tomography. Okay, so they they did a PET scan. So positron emission tomography, you're looking for metastatic cancer is what they were looking for. Uh, all of these things were normal. It is interesting, by the way, that we use positrons. That's antimatter. Positrons are positively charged electrons. And that is antimatter uh truly antimatter and they you, they make it in these just minute quantities by actually synthesizing a normal matter matter uh isotope that breaks down uh and one of the uh, as it's decaying one of the things it casts off are a positive uh a positively charged electron and um Fifty years ago, maybe it was 50 years ago, we didn't even know what the hell antimatter was. And then this guy Dirac has this equation. And I'm just going to digress for a second because this is effing fascinating to me. He has this equation that he's working on. And in it, you he had the square of the electric um, electron charge, okay, and you can quantify it into a number. And in, in this equation, there was the square. And to solve it, you have to do the square root, right? So if you have 25, what's the square root of 25? Well, you're going to say 5, but you're only going to be half right because it's, it could be 5 or minus 5, right? Because minus 5 times minus 5 is 25. Negative times a negative is positive. So, the square root of 9 is not 3, it's 3 and negative 3. I mean, it is 3, but that's only part of the answer. So, the square root of the negatively charged electron's charge, uh, I'm sorry, the, the square root of the square of the negatively charged electron's charge is going to output a negative number, which is the normal charge of the electron, but also a positive number. And he's like scratching his head going, what in that? You know, there must be something wrong. He went through nothing wrong. He finally says, look, the, the math is telling me there's a positively charged electron out there. Uh, it wasn't until, uh, and I can't remember the, the dude's name, that discovered the positively charged electron in a cloud chamber, because basically it was an electron that came through the cloud chamber had all the curved in a magnetic field the same way an electron would, but it curved in the opposite direction. And they said, damn it, we have discovered the positron. And now, 50-some years later, we're using it in you know as a routine thing. People have PET scans every day. How, it's insane to think about. And what's really insane is the math showed. So how is it that our universe is so well described on a certain level by mathematics that you could have some dude just doing some math and math in a way, and then he goes, whoa, 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 there must be a positively charged electron. And it, it was there. He discovered it, not by doing an experiment, by fucking around with um, <laughs> mathematical formulas. Einstein didn't do a single experiment to um, to do um, special or general relativity. they did experiments to verify it. But it was all done in his head thinking about how it the universe had to be. and but he had the ability to think of the not take things for granted and assume that when he's on a rocket ship going 99.999 percent, of the speed of light that when he flashes a flashlight in front of him that he's going to see that flashlight if he had a mirror way the hell out there and bounce that beam he would measure 186,000 miles per second as the speed of that beam. Well, how is that possible when he's going 185 you know 1000 miles per second? That's because it's there's a principle in um, in physics, that says that the speed of light will be measured uh, as the same by all observers, regardless of their frame of reference. And when you understand that, then you understand that that guy sitting on that rocket ship shooting this beam of light out. Has to measure that beam of light going 186,000 miles per second. And the only way that that's even remotely possible is if time has slowed down for that person. Slowed down so much so that this beam that's going, actually retreating from that person, you know, a foot a second, if you could measure it that way, if you were an independent observer looking at it and watching it you know, outpace that rocket ship by just say, a, you know, one foot every second um, that, um, th- that it had to be. You know, the independent observer sees that both of these people are going, one, the, the light's going at the speed of light, the person's going at, at 99.999% of the speed of light, but they're so slowed down because they have to be to perceive this light beam Exiting their flashlight at the speed of light. And from that, everything else follows. Causation is preserved because things can't go faster than the speed of light. Uh, And then when you start saying, well, how does this work in a gravitational field? And then now you have um, uh, general relativity, and that took a lot more. The, the math of general relativity is pretty dense and hard to understand. The math of special relativity is actually pretty simple. And when you understand that it just had to work that way, it, it's fascinating. But Einstein was the first one to figure that out. Now, you say, well, how did Einstein figure out that that light curves in a gravitational field? Well, this is how he did it, using a thing called the equivalence principle. And the equivalence principle is if you're in a box and you're accelerating at 10 meters per second per second, which is the acceleration due to gravity, you cannot tell. There's not an experiment that you can do that says, I can tell I'm not in a gravitational field. So if that's the case, if gravity is just acceleration, then if you opened up a um, hole in the side of that elevator or this box that's traveling – and you shot a beam of light into it, of course it would hit, the beam of light would hit the um, the hole at one place, but as this thing is continuing to accelerate, the beam of light would hit the far wall a little bit lower, right? Because the, the box has had a chance to move in the time that it came in through the hole. Now, because the speed of light is so fast, it would be hard for you and I to perceive that. But um, if he was going fast enough you could see the beam actually curving as it comes in because it's coming in the left side of this box and then the box is accelerating you know, forward and so the beam is actually hitting lower on the, alt- on the opposite side, of- on the opposite wall. And now Einstein goes, well, hell, if, that's- if it's happening in that box and it's indistinguishable, from being in a gravitational field, then that same beam of light would um, would curve the same amount in a gravitational field that had the same acceleration attributed to it. And from there, my friends, stemmed general relativity. All the rest was just figuring out the math. How in the hell do you figure this out in a, in 3D space? And from that came the prediction of black holes, which we have— now taken a picture of we've seen things orbiting the black hole in the uh, center of uh, our galaxy Uh, that's a cool video go do that go uh, right now as soon as you're done listening to the show um, do a youtube search on stars orbiting the central black hole of the milky way and you will see some shit that will blow your mind and uh, it's it's absolutely incredible. And all of this from a thought experiment about a guy or a woman or a an, an animal or whatever uh, traveling in a uh, box going through space accelerated at 10 meters per second per second and trying to figure out if they could tell if they were in a damn box or not. Now, can we tell... That we're not boxes in a sim, you know. That our brain is actually in a vat and being fed these stimulations. That right now your brain is in a vat, and you uh, are perceiving me talking to you through your Sirius XM radio or through your podcast player or however you're listening to this. Um, that's a whole nother discussion for another day, my friends one in which we will call Pot Talk with Dr. Steve. So let's get back to this article. Boy, that was some digression. Um, so they did this PET scan, and everything was normal. And because the normal findings from the imaging evaluation, this guy went through the million-dollar workup. Oh, this poor bastard. The patient was interviewed again, and he described a daily intake of three quarts of soy milk. Now, come on. Um I should give them the whole full boo. This guy had this giant workup, and this was sitting there the whole time, and they just didn't take a complete history. So they make this thing, and they, oh, we did all of this, and so we interviewed him again, and then we found this out. He should have found this out the first time. Uh, after he discontinued drinking, soy milk, his breast tenderness resolved, and his estradiol concentrations returned to normal. So they said this is a very unusual case of gynecomastia related to ingestion of soy products. Healthcare providers should thoroughly review patients' diary dietary habits really uh, to possibly reveal the ideology of medical conditions. So they're going to school us on that after they put this guy through uh, you know 20,000 bucks worth of testing and now they're schooling us, "Hey, you people make sure you ask your patients about whether they're drinking soy." Oh my goodness, okay. Who are these clowns? Well, I don't know that they're clowns. That was in 2008. They weren't, we'll say they weren't thinking about it. So uh, they're saying uh, it's quite uh, unusual. And I'm just going to go to pubmed.gov. Let's do that, pubmed.gov. And let's do uh, soy and gynecomastia. Okay, soy ingestion. We should probably do uh, nutritional soy. Let's put in nutrition, nutrition, God, nutritional. Okay, and gynecomastia. So let's just see real quick here. Okay, got nothing there. So let's just do soy and gynecomastia then. Uh, okay, four articles soy protein formula in children, no hormonal effects in long term feeding. Well, yeah, think about this. There's soy formula where some kids who are, you know, cows' milk um, uh, intolerant or other formula intolerant, they'll put them on soy, and 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 also don't forget, there's billions of people on this earth that's primary protein in their diet is soy, and they seem to do okay. So dietary soy protein containing isoflavoids, f- God, okay, I'm giving myself another one of these. This has not been a good day. I am um, not firing on all four cylinders. I only got four hours sleep last night. I'll give myself uh, that, but not really much of an excuse. Uh, Dietary soy protein containing isoflavonoids does not adversely affect the reproductive tract of male... Oh, what in the hell is this? Cynomologous macs, macaques. Okay, it's macaca. Fasicularis. That's their uh, uh, species name, macaca, because they throw their macaca if you're uh, at the zoo looking at them through the glass. Um, Let me see. Okay, here we go. Soybean isoflavone exposure does not have feminizing effects on men, a critical examination of the clinical evidence. Well, that's what we want. Thank you. That's what we're looking for the objective was to critically evaluate the clinical evidence and when not available, the animal data most relevant to concerns that isoflavone exposure in the form of supplements or soy foods has a feminizing effect on men. So what this design was, was a medline literature review and cross-reference of published data. So, This is one of those where, you know, I just really want to get published, but I don't feel like doing a study and going through the interventional, investigational review board, which, by the way, I totally understand. I'm uh, doing a study on um, virtual reality uh, for anxiety relief in the chemotherapy suite. And holy crap, you wouldn't believe the stuff you got to go through to try to get a human study approved. And so I've got to take all these classes and all this stuff. It's like, geez, you know, I've got 100 articles in the medical literature, but no, because this is a clinical study, I've got to do this. So anyway, so I do understand it, but that is sort of a cheap-ass um, way of uh, getting published. But anyway, uh, because you're really – you're just reviewing other people's work. but. It says here, in contrast to the results of some rodent studies, findings from recently published meta-analysis, that's where they take a bunch of different studies and mush the data together and then analyze it. Subsequently, published studies show that neither isoflavone supplements nor isoflavone-rich soy uh, affect total or free testosterone levels. Similarly, there's essentially no evidence from the nine identified clinical studies that isoflavone exposure affects circulating estrogen levels in men. Um, they have no effect on sperm or semen parameters, although only three intervention studies were identified. None were longer than three months. So, eh, that's good that they told us that. So there's, you know, it may be there, but if it is, it's it's in the, the time needed to detect that difference is longer than three months. Uh, Findings from animal studies suggesting that isoflavones increase the risk of erectile dysfunction are not applicable to men because of differences in isoflavone metabolism between rodents and humans. Can you imagine doing a study on rodent um, erectile dysfunction? I mean, how, how odd. What do you do? I mean, do you have to go down there and manipulate them to see if they get a rod? It's horrendous. Anyway, uh, so they said the intervention data indicate that isoflavones do not exert feminizing effects on men at intake levels equal to and even considerably higher than typical for Asian males. Even if, you know, we're talking about a population that eats a lot of soy, you know, in their diet. So there you go. So uh, the data does not support that hypothesis. So I'm going to say you're okay drinking your soy products. Uh, Thanks always go to Dr. Scott, even when he isn't here. And uh, to Cliff, Andrews, Cody, Gilmer, a lady diagnosis. We can't forget Rob Sprantz, Bob Kelly, Greg Hughes, Anthony Cumia, Jim Norton. Oh, we can't forget uh, Jenny McKinney, Travis Tepp, Lewis Johnson, Paul Opcharski, Eric Nagel, Roland Campos, Sam Roberts, Pat Duffy, Dennis Falcone, Ron Bennington, Fizz Watley, who's early support supporter of the show, has never gone unappreciated. Listen to our Sirius XM show on the Faction Talk channel, Sirius XM channel 103. Saturdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, Sunday at 5 p.m. Eastern, On Demand, and other times at Jim McClure's Pleasure. And many thanks to you all, our listeners whose voicemail and topic ideas make this job very easy. Go to our website at drsteve.com. Until next time, check your stupid nuts for lumps. Quit smoking, get off your asses, and get some exercise. We'll see you in one week for the next edition of Weird Medicine.